So in today's episode, we have Dave Vaughn as our guest. Dave has been coaching college baseball for 37 years. He just finished his 37th year coaching college baseball. Um, and he, this past season, he was at the University of Arizona as their associate head coach and pitching coach. And that was his eighth year with the Wildcats. So he's been around a long time. I mean, again, 37 years. He's coached some great pitchers he's he's a pitching coach I mean he's he had Mark Pryor at USC and and so because he has so much wisdom and and experience we we bounce around a little bit so we we talk a little bit about recruiting what he's looking for we talk about the mental side of the game and how he goes about helping pitchers with that and then also just creating you know buy-in and how does he go about getting buy-in from certain players and Dave someone who is open to the analytics and technology and has, has really seemed to, to use the those analytics to help get players to buy into what he's trying to get them to, to change or continue to do on the mound. So appreciate Dave coming on. I mean, again, the guy's been coaching college baseball for 37 years, and I, I think anytime we can have someone on, on the podcast who who has that type of experience, uh, I'm always going to say yes to that. So awesome stuff. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this one with with Dave. Um, the transfer portal is in full effect, and I've been been working with players trying to help get them new places to play who are in the transfer portal. So if you're someone or if you know of somebody who um, needs help finding a new school to play at and they're in the transfer portal right now, reach out to me and, and maybe we'll be a good fit to work together. So it's jonesbaseballtraining at gmail.com. Again, if you're in the transfer portal and you're looking for a place to play next year, jonesbaseballtraining at gmail.com. Okay, here we go. The episode with Dave on. This is the future. This is my time. I grind and shine. I put in the work and push the line. All right, we now welcome on the podcast, Dave Wan. Dave, appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Patrick. So, Dave, you've been you've been coaching now for over 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, 37 to be exact. Okay, okay. I was going to 37, for, coaching for 37 years. Next year will be your 38th. Yep. What's your proudest moment as a coach? Oh, wow. That's a good one. Um well, I think, you know, not to sound cornball or anything like that, but I think, you know, there's on the field proud moments, there's mm-hmm. off the field proud moments. I, I, I kind of think the uh, off the field ones are always the best because it's nice when they think to invite you to weddings or when they... Um, you know, want to tell you that they had a baby or that they got a new job or that they think enough of you to put you down as a reference for a job and, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, proud moments on the field, you know, um, obviously sometimes people point towards uh, World Series or regionals or super regionals, but I, I I kind of want to say that anytime you win a conference championship and when we won one in 21, that was really, really cool. They hadn't done it in a while at the U of A to that point. And, um, and there were a lot of kids on that team, like Dante, we were talking about Dante Williams. Um, you know, he, he's, you're so happy that they're happy. And, um, you know, Dante, as I think I told you in our phone call last week, he's, you know, one of those kids you wish you could coach for the rest of his life. So, um, but, uh, yeah, I would say that 21 Pac-12 championship. Yeah, Dante is a great kid, and um, I like that answer. I like the the off the field plus, you know, and that's different than than on the field proud moments. I'm sure that, you know, with all the years you've coached, you've had – seems like probably every type of personality possible as a as a player coaching you um or you coaching them I should say and I think this is something that I don't hear a lot of coaches talking about but I know it's important there's always players that that they don't buy in like maybe you don't connect with them 
and but maybe like over time and yeah. it might take a year it may take two years right sure. where they finally buy in you finally get them you know to to really do what you want them to do and they're now happy and things like that what what has been some ways that you have been able to help players over that hump to to get them to trust you and to get them to buy into the program when maybe before it was just they were more so a me guy instead of a we guy yeah you know i prefer to cut coach the ones that are really tough to reach i mean i think that's more challenging it's it's um I wouldn't say fun. It's fun at the end when, like you say, they they buy in. I think um, it's a lot easier to get them to buy in now because you have all these ways of measuring what it is that they're doing. Um, you know, the big thing now, and and for example, Wake Forest is proof of how they've implemented their analytics, which is probably as next level or close to next level as any place in the country. But I go back to uh, a kid that we were coaching um, in 18, I think. And it's a left-hander, had a big arm. Um, he was a strike thrower, but his secondary stuff wasn't very good. He was really reluctant to change because he thought his stuff was good, right? And and he thought the changeup was good. He had a real unorthodox way of holding it. He would hold it in these fingers, you know, where these were the dominant fingers. And, of course, you know, we have all this data to show that it's probably better working off the middle finger and the ring finger. And so anyways, um, as is my nature, you know, you kind of let them succeed, fail, and then in due time, you kind of bring them in. And so we put the rap soto down there and we got the camera out and, um, <clears throat> and we, I showed him pictures of efficient hand positioning with the breaking ball, especially the curveball, especially if you spike it. I showed him what an efficient hand position. These were left hand. He was a lefty with the change. And then we had the major league averages, right? So I said, spike your curveball and throw it. Just throw it like you would throw your regular curveball. And he was bouncing them, bouncing them. And that's why he didn't like it. But then I showed him, I said, look, though, so you, you, Look what the measurements are. Look what the measurables are compared to major league. And you're throwing a major league curveball, but you're just not throwing it for a strike. And then I said, okay, change your, here's your, you know, throw your change up like you throw it. Look how it's spinning. Now throw it with the two fingers. Look how it's spinning. Well, he didn't, he didn't command it or anything like that. Um, and he was really ultra self-centered on himself, not even really well-liked as a, as a teammate. And he was one of those guys that you could, um, you know, he could throw like a 60-pitch bullpen, no problem, right? He just had one of those arms. And then I said, you're going to throw a cutter. So just here's your four-seam fastball. Hold it off to the side. Think fastball, cutter grip. And we measured it. And, then, you know, and so – he didn't pitch for, say, eight or nine days, and then we started him against a team. And in that game alone, off the curveball, he had 17 swing and misses. 17. That's like, you know, that's crazy, right? Now, it was against a college team, and so whatever, but it's all relative. And, and he started throwing a cutter, and the changeup started – being close, at least looking like a strike without some busy, spinny kind of a thing. And then it got him drafted in the sixth round because it happened at a time in the season where there was still some time, right? And, and, and of course, we have TrackMan and the analytics and all that kind of stuff. And, it, you know, everybody's getting it, data share, right? And, you know, to this day when I touch base with him every now and then, he's – he goes, man, I always think back to that 45-minute bullpen session where we were just 
experimenting and I said, well, shame on me for not doing it the day you got there. And because I knew then, you know, I knew when we got him. I knew when we were recruiting him and watching him catch and seeing his grips and saying, ah, you got to spike your curve and you should throw a cutter and you got to, you got to be more neutral with your grip on the changeup. So, um, you know, I think too, that when kids aren't buying in, it's, they're not really jerks, you know, they just, they lack confidence. Those kind of guys lack confidence. They feel like they got to act a certain way. They don't act naturally in the group. When they say something out of the dugout, it sounds wrong, you know, on every team, you know, especially in college where there's a lot of energy and there's a lot of chatter and all that, you know, he, he it just didn't come out right. So, you know, and it's because he wasn't confident, you know, and, and, and most of them are that way when they're not buying in. Mm. Because eventually you're going to be able to point to the numbers. If his way is the best way, then the numbers will play out. But if they're not playing out, then your way is not the best way. You got to be willing to make some adjustments and change. You know, I mean, bad players don't want to be coached. Good players want to be good players want to be coached, <clears throat> but great players want the truth. Mm -hmm. And um, I read that somewhere on Twitter. I don't know who it belongs to. I'm not trying to pass it off as my own, but um, the um, but that's that's so true, you know, and um, um, I think sometimes, you know, it is true that um when you coach guys nowadays, it's almost like they think you're yelling at them or something. You know, that is a big difference because they, they, they aren't as influenced by a real rigid, rigid standard of how to do things like I was and my colleagues that are my age play because if you played at El Cerrito High School like I did, then you also played El Cerrito American Legion. And American Legion was the high school, and the high school was American Legion. And it was all the same people coaching you with a certain standard, whether it was right, wrong, or indifferent. But the bottom line is, you know, the high school coach in so many places doesn't get them very long. I mean, they – probably two thirds of their games that they play are with club environments where they're trying to win and that sort of thing, but there's really no consequence. I mean, you don't feel lousy if you lose to a high school. I mean, you feel bad when you lose to the high school rival. A lot of times you're playing some club team in the summer or fall. And you never even heard of them. So going back to, um, what you're talking about, like building that, getting that buy-in from that, from that kid, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe use it other ways too, but you've used the, the data and analytics to help create the buy-in maybe more than anything else, because it sounds like you already knew he had those issues. Like you didn't need the data or the analytics to tell you what you wanted him to do. It was more so to get him to buy in. Yeah. And, and again, that's a recent example because you do have, we do have that stuff, you know? Um, I, I think before that, you know, you, you, I mean, I think it's all in the delivery too. I mean, I've always maintained that um, the best way is the best way. My way is not the best way and your way is not the best way. The best way is the best way. And together we got to, put our heads together and figure out the best way. Now there's certain things throughout a delivery. Um, the, uh, the way in which you play catch, all those kinds of things. I'm unalterable in my thinking. Okay. If you're not connecting with the glove inside of 120 feet and that's not your sole goal, and to be fundamentally sound with your throwing, that's a problem because I've just seen the movie too much 
You spray it in catch, you spray it in a pen, you spray it in a gant, period. Now, you want to go to 300 feet? I don't care <laughs> how accurate you are, right? I mean, within reason, you know, just don't pull the first baseman off the bag. That's not unreasonable, right? But, but, um, but in terms of what they think they need, what they want to do, all that kind of stuff, it ha you, you, you kind of have to collaborate. Because if you're just jamming something down their throat, especially a high school freshman, you're gonna you're just gonna mess with them. You know, a JUCO guy or a portal guy, you can say, hey, there's a reason why you're here and you haven't already gone out to do what you want to do. Okay, so let me help you. I'm not gonna make you worse. Okay, I'm gonna give you some stuff that'll help you. So you mentioned portal guys, JUCO guys. What are some numbers that, you know, you if, if someone gives you a player and says, like, hey, would you be interested in this player? What are some numbers that you immediately look to to see if if you're going to actually be interested or not? And, I mean, you could throw, have the greatest stuff, video, all that stuff online, but it's like, man, these are the numbers that I want to see. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you want to see, you know, with the JUCO guys, because you don't have the tech to support what it is. You know, hits per nine, walks per nine, Ks per nine. Um, when you get into, say, portal guys who might, you know, they're they're on True Media, they're on Synergy. Well, now you can really see do they have a swing and miss pitch, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, it strikes. Period. Strikes. And then you take a little step forward, you know, what's his miss rate? What's his end zone rate? What's the chase rate? You know, that can be misleading too. That can throw you off a little bit. Um, the, um, you know, because the level of competition might guna the opposing hitters out against this guy with a big arm because they think, you know, go oh God, the guy's unhittable and they're just swinging wild. So, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of factors. I mean, I think from a delivery standpoint, you know, pretty clean, pretty simple, pretty simple arm action, you know, particularly if he's a starter, um, you can have some funk in the delivery or arm action. If, if you view this guy as a bullpen piece, but, um, um, you know, I mean, there's just, if you if you have the opportunity to take deep dives, you know, you want to, you know, what kind of student is he, you know? I mean, we're not trying to get road scholars, but, you know, if the guy's taking care of business in school, then he's probably pretty squared away in, in um, I mean, put it this way. I've never seen a guy over, underachieve in, on campus and overachieve on the field. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good point. I'm glad you shared that. So, I mean, if you're a jack wagon down on campus, chances are you're a jack wagon, um, you know, on the field. So, so you, you've been you've coached before the analytics and technology, and then you've you've seen it through, and now you're coaching when it's never been, I would say, like more active um, right. throughout the game. Mm -hmm. Has what what has been an, an aha moment for you? when it comes to the technology, like, is there something that you, you really learned from it or has it always just yeah. kind of been, you knew a lot of this stuff. You maybe didn't have like names for it, but yeah. it, you know what, you, do you understand what I'm saying? And then it's yeah, like, yeah, well, it, it's, you know, we used to say the God, it's, it's this guy's straight, you know, he's it's flat. They barrel everything. Right. So, well, now with technology you can see why so if it's a forcing guy and he's flat or the ball kind of runs out of the zone a little bit arm side you know now you have an edutronic camera to see well where's his wrist at when he's throwing it those are kind of the you know there i remember uh 
that was a really, really good pitcher years and years ago out of the Southern California area and being heavily recruited and getting just raked, just getting hit all over the park the whole summer. <clears throat> and he, somebody nicknamed him Puff the Magic Dragon, you know, because the ball just, it, puff, it just, it didn't hit the glove hard, you know. Well, that was a guy now we would have seen either on a radar gun with the spin rate on it or on some high-speed video, we would have been able to, now you can correct them. That's what's great about that stuff, particularly when you're evaluating younger players. You know, you might have a a kid in a 25 class who's just coming out of his sophomore year and he's a skinny righty or skinny lefty and he's 84, 86, but the spin's good on his fastball, you know, or he's throwing a little bit under V-load breaking ball, but the spin's good on it, right? So those are kind of the, like you say, aha moments where where it can and it can really, really help you. From an evaluation standpoint, are there certain questions that you ask uh, potential recruits just to be able to to know like whether or not 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 that they love pitching or love baseball, but when we talked a little bit about this the other day on the phone, is just you know the mental side of the game, like the competitiveness. Like are there are certain questions that you have to try to gauge that because that's an area that's you can't quantify the mental side of the game. But I know, I mean, I know you think this way too. It's so important, and it's uh, it's not yeah. talked a lot about. So I was just wondering if there is any. Any questions that you have for like players in the recruiting process to try to, you know, see who who is mentally tough versus who isn't? Yeah, um, I'm always impressed by young players when they have a really good routine. Um, so I'll always ask them, you know, okay, you pitch today. What's tomorrow look like? What's the next day look like? What's the next day look like? And when they can answer. You're like, yeah, this guy's taking his stuff seriously, you know. Um, when they're just kind of ho hum about it, um, it's it's a turnoff. Um, I think to really, I mean, mental toughness. I think I said to you, to me is, a, <clears throat> I think they gotta, you know. That's one area they're not spending time on right now, you know, the mental game. But you can tell what kind of mental game a guy has just by his mound presence, you know. Um, you know, does he have a routine in between pitches, right? What What's his body language like when they hit him? What's his body language like when there's a straball? What's What's – how does he interact? You know, what's he look like? Does he look scared? Does he look nervous? You know, all those kinds of things. Um, I mean, I don't really, I, I, I can honestly say what I'm more interested in when, when you have that initial contact is I like to know what their routine is. Mm. And then it could be an over, you know, it could be a routine that's a ritual, you know, um, you know, you have, you have a lot of kids nowadays that think they got to go through this whole thing just to play catch. Right. Um, I mean, you know, roll out and do, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think, I think if you're, if you're the starter that day or, you know, or it's something that you do, in other words, there's a fine line between routine and ritual. Ritual's a bad rabbit hole. Routine's a good rabbit hole. And because you saw somebody do it or you were told, you know, I, I you know, maybe this is me being a little old school, but I think a good dynamic warm up and get your heart pumping and get a good sweat going um, is probably plenty with a good J band routine and a good mini mini band routine 
is really plenty to get you prepped. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I think that guys that are rolling out all the time are kind of injured, <laughs> you know, um, or some guys are just really tight. I mean, I could see a, a position player. He's got to have some kind of routine where he's prepping his body to go through the rigors because he's playing every day. I could see a reliever needing to do that. I could see a starter needing to do that the day after or maybe even the second day. And then maybe on days that he's getting on the slope. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at, for some guys, and it's a small group of guys, how long it takes them just to get their arm ready to play catch. And they're not injured. So – what do you but, think that is? You think that's just from social media and Sure, I mean it's all that stuff, you know. You know, I mean, guys like you know, Corey Kluber made the Mark Pro famous, right? I mean, and I mean, but there's real science to behind the Mark Pro, right? Um I think, you know, and there's super reputable places out there that are working with kids on moving the body the right way, velocity development, pitch design, all that kind of stuff. And so they think, you know, because that's what they're doing there, that's what I should be doing. And, and um, you know, doing a lot isn't wrong. Um, Over-preparing, I would say, is not wrong. It's just when it becomes a ritual, you know, um, cause at the end of the day, it's gotta be about executing pitches and throwing strikes. Yeah. Nothing else. Nothing good happens. If you're throwing balls all the time, it doesn't matter what your routine is. No, no. What about breathing? I mean, you mentioned J band so a bit earlier and, uh, you know, that kind of sparked a thought in my head about the importance of, of breathing, the importance of just slowing the heart rate down, especially on the mound. Maybe you do walk a guy or two and, um, I was talking to someone the other day, a buddy of mine, his name's Ryan Atkinson. He was an undrafted player out of college, played indie ball, got signed to the Diamondbacks, ended up uh, leading the entire minor leagues in strikeouts one year and uh, ended up, you know, ended up going to AAA. But long story short, like one of the things that he said really helped him more than anything was once he learned like how to breathe and once he learned that, you know, when he was on the mat, like on the mound, how to just slow everything down and, and be so relaxed and kind of what you were saying about the routine. I think sometimes people think that routine is solely before the game, you know, but there's, I think there's routines during the game too. And I think that's something that, that he learned with breathing and, and how to control his breath and his, it relax his body. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's, it's key. I mean, I think, it has to be practiced. It has to be trained. It has to be reminded. I really feel like um, it should be implemented into your catch. Um, I mean, because everybody would agree, you know, you got to get through this inning one pitch at a time. We got to get through this game one pitch at a time. So, how do you do that, right? Well, breathing is universally thought of as the single best way to do that. And um, at what point before you throw is different for everybody. But um, if you don't practice it, then, and it doesn't become who you are, then how is it that me looking at the side, you know, from the dugout, you know, there's been times where we've had the guys that have a real good routine, take a good breath, and they might be spraying the ball a little bit or getting banged around. And, you know, conversation might be, hey, should we get somebody up or this or that? And I'll say, nah, he's in control. You know, he's just getting the ball up a little bit. 
conversely, you get this guy who's not doing anything. You just get it, go, get it, go, get it, go. Um, and, or he has a routine, but as soon as it gets bad, all of a sudden he's not breathing. Okay. Now let's make a mound visit or let's send the shortstop in there. You know, I think that's an, you know, an, a, a kind of an untalked about thing, you know, where you're coaching the guys on the field to recognize it too. So you don't have to make a mound visit and that sort of thing. But I think, uh, it's pretty rare that bad breathers are good pitchers. I mean, you watch that guy for, um, I mean, um, Dolander didn't pitch great. Right. But, didn't look like he wasn't pitching great, you know? Yeah. And then, and then you get the guy, uh, the guy that came in after him, Ben, uh, I don't know. This guy's throwing a hundred, right? And man, was he in control, you know, get the ball back, check the, for the pitch, put the ball in the glove. over and over and over and over again. Um, I think the breathing or lack thereof is going to give us an indication how in control you are. Because you can, literally you can't think about anything else other than when you breathe. I mean, you can go – I mean, I, I can't even – like a, an exterior thought doesn't even jump into my brain. Like It doesn't. Try it. Just, Just, you know, you can just sit there – when we're done with this and try to think about your 550 hitting group that's coming in tonight or whatever it is, right? It can't pop into your head because you're consciously breathing and not the kind where it's like a good one, you know, in the nose, out the mouth. Hmm. And you got to practice it. You got to do it in bullpens. You got to do it in catch. You got to dry drill it. You got to do all that. Why do you think this, this is something that, People talk about it, but I mean, if we're being honest, majority of players aren't doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, why, why is that? Because this has been around since humans have been, have been around, right? I mean, you read stories uh, about Socrates talking about some of this stuff and, and breathing. I mean, why, yeah. why do you think that? Is it just because it's not sexy? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those all those kids out there are spending good time and money and stuff going to these places they got they got they got to spend some time listening to Alan Yeager he's really going to help your game right you know i mean there's so many components that are all equally important to being successful on the mound and and the mental game to me isn't like outward toughness or not being i mean it's taking the time to breathe, staying in that pre-pitch routine and, and understanding, you know, to coin Ken Revisa, green light, red light, yellow light, all those kinds of things. What about visualization? Well, uh, I, I, I think, I mean, if you can see yourself do it, there's, there's no doubt you've increased your chances of doing it. I haven't, I haven't done much of that. I can't. You, you haven't done much of it? No. No. Why is that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it's not good. I mean, you're going to make me relook at it for sure. Yeah. Uh, again, that was just when I was talking to, uh, you know, that pitcher the other day and, that was something he brought up that he started doing. He also said before games, he'd go on the mound and uh, eyes closed, always eyes closed. Um, you know, he he would go through, uh, you know, just some his entire windup and out of the stretch and just, again, just like visualizing it. all that stuff. And, man, it's just – it kind of fires me up. I don't know, talking about this stuff fires me up because I just think it it helps – this is what really helps players. I think more than anything else from what I've seen anyway. And I know you've, you know, I'm not a pitching coach. uh, You are more on the hitting side, but it's the same thing. You're talking about people. So um, I don't know. It's just, it's something that I've, I've always been, been drawn to more than anything. 
I watched this uh, this thing. Have, have you seen the deal? Um, um, hmm, what's it called? Uh, Hold the rope. Hold it's, the rope. Yeah, it's uh, it's the story of LSU baseball. Skip Bertman. Um, what does he say? I have it here. It's a saying that he had that he would drill into his players' heads. Mm. And, oh, here it is. Star in your own movie. See yourself make a pitch. If you vividly ima imagine, ardently desire, sincerely believe, enthusiastically act upon it every day, it will come to pass. Ooh, I like that. That's Skip Bertman. I like that. You know, so the next group I get the opportunity to coach will do more visualization. Okay, there we go. <laughs> I know, um, I know, Dave. You coached Mark Pryor, mm -hmm. and uh, there's been a ton of ton of great pitching prospects over the over the years, over the decades. I mean, would do you put him in the Steven Strasburg, Paul Skeens category? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think he was better than those guys, and it was just an injury? Um. Yeah. Or about well, the same? I mean, the yeah. I I think I think Paul Skeens is about you know, especially if he gets another crack at pitching in the college world series, you could make the argument that, that, that he is better than Mark. Now Mark's first couple, three years in the big leagues, you know, were really, really good. Right. Um, you know, Mark struck out 202 guys and walked 18. And I think if somewhere south of, of 130 innings. <clears throat> he had games where the first 54 pitches of the game and the first 60-something pitches of the game were strikes. What? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I wish, I wish I'd have kept that pitching chart. Oh, my gosh. And, um, you know – I would love to have seen what what his analytics were, because you talk about, I mean, he had a a good breaking ball, not a great breaking ball. He had a ordinary change that got better later in his career, but what he had was this fastball that he could throw between the belly button and the top of the zone anytime he wanted. And so there was obviously, unbeknownst to us, there was some vert to it. And I, I would gather his vert was well north of 20 back then. <laughs> you know, he, but, but that was also a time when you also, you know, you pitched down and away, down and in, and you pitched up late in the zone to get him to chase. Now, you know, there's there's certainly a place where, you know, you can throw three straight fastballs at the top of the zone if a guy's good at it and, and then he can have success, pop-ups and strikeouts. Um, but, yeah, Mark Mark was real good. We had Ian Kennedy. Ian Kennedy was another guy that he didn't have a very good breaking ball in college, but he had the Vulcan change. When you say didn't not a good breaking ball, do you just mean he couldn't command it, or just right? Okay, he didn't command it. Didn't command it. Took him a while. Play around with a slider, a cutter, a curve. We try to get it going early in the game, and it would spike it or lose it on high arm side, and and just you know. But he was a guy that was fastball split action change, and. For three years that he pitched in college, he led the country in backwards Ks. Look, you know, backwards Ks per nine. Wow. 
he was another guy that had some ride on the fastball and impeccable command with it. And he, he was the one guy where I first noticed had a completely different gear with runners in scoring position. You know, Ian in college would be 90-92, um, which in the mid-2000s, you know, that was firm. That was a lot of fastball. But you get a guy on second base or get a guy on third or runners in scoring position, he could flick a switch and go three to five. Mm. And and I, it was uncanny. I mean, literally his average fastball velocity increased with runners in scoring position as opposed to with not with, with no runners in scoring position. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, and you know, you don't you don't coach that, you know, it's just there was something inside of him that doesn't like to give up runs. Did you ever have a coaching mentor? Yeah. Um, Mike Gillespie. I played for him when I was in college in uh, summer league in Alaska. I got a chance to coach with him. Um, and, um, at SC for seven or eight years. Um, but I, I, I say the same thing when I do something like this or I speak in public or something like that. Um, I've never had a bad coach. I mean, I could go back to a nine and 10 year old Mr. Man, the El Cerrito Cubs and, you know, the patience. I remember the patience cause I was not a very composed young kid, right? If I struck out gear was going everywhere. And then when I played for Mr. Wilson in the 11 and 12 El Cerrito Padres of the Bronco league, I learned about, team spirit. I mean, the stuff we used to do to before games to get excited and fired up to play. And then Mr. McDonald. And when I was 13 and 14 playing pony ball for the Mets and, and it was like everything, you know, we had fun and it was competitive. And then I played for one of the Northern California high school baseball coaching legends, Larry Carrico. And then Tom Purse with um, Atlanta College in Oakland, junior college. I mean, you talk about toughness. I mean, needing to be physically tough. And, and the workouts we would go through on rainy days and, and, and all that. And then play for Al Ferrer at, at UC Santa Barbara. And we had really good teams there. And, he was a, I mean, he taught me a lot about practice plans, you know, how it would be down to the minute, you know, boom, 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 boom. And, and, and then, um, you know, I mean, I've coached with and for a lot of really awesome people, but um, I would say Mike Gillespie probably had the biggest influence on me. Yeah. I think it's, it, it's so, uh, I think it's important to always, have somebody you can talk to. I mean, I think for me, I, I feel spoiled because I have this podcast where I can ask someone like yourself who, who's been in the game for, you know, so much longer than I have. And, and uh, I think it just like, man, like why, why would you make the same mistake twice if someone's already made a mistake and you can learn from them type of a thing. So that's, that's why I always like talking to coaches who have have more experience than myself and have been around just because you just learn so much. You know what I mean? There's a book written by a USC baseball alum. Um, you can you can you can find it somewhere, but it actually you, you say never make the same mistake twice. The title of the book was never make the same mistake once. That was a big Rod Dato saying, and you know um, Rod Dato. I mean, Skip Bertman is the modern day. John Wooden, Augie Garrido, all that kind of stuff. Rod Dato has 11 titles and um, was an unbelievable baseball guy. But there's a whole book of Rod Dato-isms, and the title of the book is called Never Make the Same Mistake Once. I'll check that one out. 
And underneath it says you can learn a lot by watching. Mm, yeah, I like that. You've been watching the the College World Series, I'm sure, just like we all have. Like, what what are some things that are sticking out to you? Like, what are some things that maybe if if young players or maybe college players who aren't in the World Series, like what should people be paying attention to and and watching? The the spirit of it all, you know. Um, you know, it's it's kind of cool to be cool, and um, they're they're playing with so much energy and so much passion and, and showmanship. I mean, you've, I've been lucky. I've been there four times and you really see, see it come out in them when they're there because it's such a, it's a, it's a big, big audience. There's a lot of people in the stands, but the whole world's watching and the kids really feed off it. And, and um, you know, we, We've been saying for years, you know, as soon as it gets to September, October in the big leagues, they start playing like college kids. You know, they're they're jumping over the railing on, you know, a, a, a run, a, a tie breaking run in the fourth, you know, and in college, they do it all the time. And it really, really comes out um, in them when they're at the College World Series. I mean, that's the thing I noticed the most. And, um, you know, just it's it is literally the most fun they'll have ever playing baseball <clears throat> until they're playing in the playoffs in the major leagues or a World Series in the major leagues. It is 100 percent the most fun they'll ever have. And um, I, I've really enjoyed being able to kind of have the best seat in the house where I'm kind of like, like the game is an aquarium, right. Or it's a fishbowl and I'm on the outside looking in because they have so much fun and they just can't get the smiles off their faces. Yeah. It looks like a lot of fun. That's, that's for sure. Um, one of the things that I've seen on Twitter, which I know I, I'm sure it pop, pops up every year is, is pitch counts and, uh, you know, I know that kid from Stanford threw like 150 something pitches and it just seems anytime anybody's over a hundred, there's people chirping on Twitter. Mm -hmm. What's your take on, on pitch counts, um, for, for pitchers in general, I would say. Well, I mean, I think, um, the most injuries in college occur in October, somewhere in there. And they occur in January and February. And that's that can be avoided with a deliberate, slow ramp up. OK. I would say the vast majority of people out there are doing it right. So opening weekend, maybe no new inning in the 80s or 90s and second weekend, no new inning in the 90s and third weekend. You know, he's not going to do a new inning in the hundreds and then you just slowly build them up. And, and you go, right? Um, I don't think it's so much the pitch count, Patrick. I just think it's, it's over how many innings. Let's say Quinn Matthews threw 156 pitches in 12 innings. I mean, do the math, right? Mm -hmm. He's throwing 13, 14 pitches an inning. He's not even breaking a sweat. There's no high-stress inning in that. Now, obviously, there was some high-stress innings in a nine-inning, 156-pitch game. Um, but I think we've really, over time, have coached caution into the players as it relates to pitch count. I mean, why can't you throw 120 pitches? I mean, I think 130 and under – until you get to the playoffs is reasonable. If you're going once a week, you're not towing it up every five days, you know, I mean, um, provided the ramp up was deliberate and well thought and closely monitored. But to me, 
you know, you, you might have a guy go 14 pitches in the first inning and 16 in the third, and then he has a 34-pitch inning. Well, that guy's probably not going very long, mm-hmm. right? Because he expended a lot of energy to get through that 34-pitch inning. So I think you have to look at it relative to the situation. Quinn Matthews was trying to pitch his team to the College World Series. And in so doing, he gave up a run or two and punched out 16. And it took 156 pitches. And the next day, there was video on social media of him playing catch, and he looked completely normal. Now, if you're doing that every single weekend, well, that's an issue. But they didn't. So about 115 to 120 something for most of his starts. Um, And he survived it. You know, I find it funny how you can pay a guy $130 million over five or six years, handle him properly throughout the year, have him throw a complete game in a World Series. And then bring them back on a day's rest or no rest to clean up to close out a game the next day. Now, what's more risky? Probably I the mean, guy coming back the next day. <laughs> I mean, they do it. It's the playoffs. You know, it's the yeah. playoffs. Now, I think, you know, take Paul Skeens, for example. I don't know how that guy bounces back. I don't know the conversation that's happening between him and his coaches. You know, they might bring him back on four or five days reps if it means they stay alive to to play in the championship series. I don't see what's wrong with that. They haven't done that to him all year. In fact, they've done the complete opposite. They've protected him. He threw a bunch of pitches in the regional, threw a bunch of pitches in the super. And then he threw a bunch of pitches the other night. But they handled him great up to that. So, you know, uh, what's wrong is, is when a guy's 15 years old and he throws 60 pitches for his team that day, and then on the back end of the doubleheader plays shortstop, and then play shortstop for the next two days. And then on two days rest, he throws a couple three innings. Now that's abusive. But I think it just I think it just depends on the situation. In 16, we had to play the if game in the regional, which means game six or whatever. Our starter on Friday through seven innings, 110 pitches. And he had to come back on Monday, two days rest. Okay. And he pitched another seven innings. And everybody's teeing off on us. And so we go off to Mississippi State to play in the Super. And we had decided going into that weekend that – um if we won game one, we were going to hold this pitcher off for game three to give him a little wider berth. And so we won game one and we're back at the hotel and we're telling the team, here's what's going to happen. You know, breakfast tomorrow, we're wearing this uniform, bus leaves, blah, blah, blah. And tomorrow's starting pitcher is, I won't name names, but Johnny Rifle. Everybody, all right, let's go, Johnny. Everybody gets out of their seat and their leave, except for the guy that we threw on Friday and Monday. And he's looking at the coaching staff like, what the? And we said, well, we decided what we would do is if we won. He goes, yeah, 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 I get it. I'm pitching tomorrow. Now, this is a fifth-year senior, by the way. I'm pitching tomorrow. Well, we already told Johnny Rifle he's pitching tomorrow. Oh, I'll go tell Johnny Rifle he's not pitching tomorrow, and I am. So, I mean, it's just – it's the playoffs, man. You're going for it. 
Did know? that kid end up pitching? Yeah, and he won. And then he oh. won the opener against uh, Miami that year in the in the series. And then he, he ended up hurting his wrist. He got you know that wrist injury you get from throwing. Yeah. Yeah, he, he got that in. Uh, he started a week later against Oklahoma State. He went eight up, eight down, and then his wrist locked up. So was that because we threw him twice in Lafayette and then brought him back on short rest against Mississippi? And he had normal rest through seven or eight against Miami. And then on normal rest, we cranked him up again. Hey, man, if you want to say that's what it was, okay. But the guy was a fifth-year senior who got a chance to play pro ball, but, you know, wasn't a prospect. Right, yeah. No fifth-year seniors are big-time prospects. So, I mean, yeah. I think the the pitch count thing is, you know, I, I mean, I think it's real, but it, – don't talk about the pitch count. Talk about the ramp up. How are you getting them there? How are you getting them to be able to throw in the fall? Like, what's ground zero to the top of the mountain? And then now we're going to throw however many, you know, it's done differently everywhere. You know, you, you might have guys just throw two or three in the fall or do whatever, right? It's kind of our instructional league. Um, but I, I, I think it's more about the ramp up and about the kid and the kid's desire. You know, I would say to the players out there listening, you know, if you're, if, if you're worried about the pitch count in the middle of the game and you're concerned about it, that's a red flag, you know? I had a kid last year, you know, we were talking about pitch count, just shooting the, shooting the breeze in the locker room. And, and I said to him, what do you think a big number is? And he goes, 90, 100. I go, really? I said, I want you to do a little research for me. Look at the college pitchers. There were like four taken in the – first 10 picks that year, look up their pitch count in college. He said, that you're, this is your homework assignment. I want to see this tomorrow. On an Excel spreadsheet, I want it nice and organized. And he put it together and he goes, wow, I had no idea. I mean, why are you limiting yourself? I mean, you can't do it forever. You know, let's not use the Nolan Ryan or Juan Marichal or, you know, that's those guys are aliens. OK, they did. They, they, they got dropped down by a spaceship that that's not the comparison. But but there's a time of the year when you do it. You know. Yeah, I think. All great points you bring up right there. And I think just the the on-ramp and, and what they're doing before in the off-season, like all that is is so important to note and for coaches out there who are listening to this. And, um, you know, like you said, it, championship time of the year, playoff time of the year, one or two times isn't going to, you know, break their UCL or tear their UCL by doing it, especially if they ramped it up correctly. So all great points, uh, no doubt about it. That's an overuse injury. Yeah. yeah. For years. Cumulative. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, they'll, you know, like I said, they'll throw 60 pitches in the front end of a doubleheader on Friday, play short then play short for the next two days over three or four games and then come back and pitch on, on Monday. What's worse. Yeah. At 15 with, you know, no muscle. At 15. Or 18 or 17. Right. To me, that's worse. Well, Dave, I appreciate you coming on today, man. It's been a ton of fun. Um, You know, I really, I really think that, you know, having someone like yourself on the show with, with all your experience in the game and, um, you know, thank you for, for sharing some of that wisdom with, with everyone today and myself included. So appreciate it. I can't wait to continue to follow you. 
and uh, we'll be, I'll be rooting for you wherever you, you do end up next year. And um, you know, we'll, I'll definitely have to try and catch a game and, and see if we can't uh, meet in person. You bet. Thanks, Patrick. I appreciate it. Time I grind and shine. I put in the work and push the line.